My grandpa used to say, you got to be ready in season and out of season. I think that means when Nick calls you on Saturday morning and says, I can't talk, you're preaching tomorrow, that you uh, better be ready. Hey, I want to thank two teams, uh, Friday night, Annette and her team. Uh, how many women were at that event? Um, I was actually there too, you know, and just for a moment. And it was a great event, just a thanks. And then Gwen and her team, how many were at the kids' gingerbread thing yesterday morning? Was it good? I heard it was great. So shout out to those two teams and the good work that they, they do. How many times have you been in the midst of a situation where you just wondered, okay, is God really in control of this thing? Because there's just a lot that happens that seems so opposed to what God's plan must be. You just got to wonder sometimes, don't you? I love this passage because it answers some of those, some of those doubts and some of those things. We're going to open up the Bible to John chapter 11. If you have, um, I don't know what page it is in the, in the church pew Bible, but it's right after where we were last week. So, <laughs> get my helpers on. I want to read it to you. So we're coming out of the story of Lazarus, and I'll recap that in just a minute, but I want to read starting in John 11, verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's going to be a bad odor, for he's been there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. Then there's a transition to a different scene that follows right out of this one. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous miracles, signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. Not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert 
to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. We'll stop there. Fathers, we open up your word. Jesus later in John 14 said that the Holy Spirit would guide us into truth, and so I ask that that would be the case today, and that as we consider this passage and what it may mean for us, that we would each hear what you would have us to hear, Spirit, and make application in our own life. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's two scenes that we're gonna talk about and draw application from. One is the scene with Jesus and Martha standing in front of a tomb, a very solemn time, um, a very confusing time for one of them, a very confident time for the other, Jesus. And then we'll move to the Sanhedrin where there's arguing and a prophecy is stated out of anger and out of fear that Jesus would have to die. Up to this point, over the last few months, but uh, a little bit longer for that for Jesus, um, he's been demonstrating that he's Lord. He's done miraculous things. He's fed people out of nothing. He's, he's just done all these things, and the people are starting to recognize that, hey, this guy who does all the signs, he must be Jesus. He must be who he says he is. Well, at least some of them say that. But in every scene, you've noticed that there are those who believe and those who do not. And now he's going to prove that he's Lord over life and death. And so Lazarus gets sick. And he's the brother of Mary and Martha. They get word to Jesus. Jesus is at that time two, two days away. Knowing that if Jesus showed up, he could heal him. Because that's what Jesus has been doing. Well, Jesus waits two days. How would you feel if you knew that the Savior could have healed, but instead he intentionally stayed away? But when Jesus heard the news, he made a statement. He said this, this sickness will not end in death. He didn't say Lazarus wouldn't die. He said it wouldn't end in death. But Mary and Martha, they weren't in a place they wanted to hear that. So he shows up, and I would imagine that from what we know about Martha, she was a little indignant, pretty angry at Jesus, and says, you know, if you had just shown up, he wouldn't be dead. Now, this wasn't true because it was going to take two days to get there, and Lazarus had already been dead for four days, so. But in the moment, the anger showed, and, and it had to impact Jesus. Jesus also loved this family, counted Lazarus as a close friend. And so now, standing in front of the grave, there's a conversation. Listen to what he says to Martha that provided a bridge between what seemed obvious and what God was doing. Jesus said to her, this is back in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
And it's that last phrase that he's going to key on in this passage, I think, is, is mostly about. Belief in Jesus is the bridge between what the world thinks it sees and the reality of God. And that's important for us to understand because we get caught in this world that we live in and we see things and we wonder, okay, God, how are you gonna do this? Somehow you might've missed this one, Father, because, and we can fill in the blank. But if Jesus the Messiah is the resurrection and life, then even in the face of death, he is to be trusted. Regardless of the circumstance that we find ourselves in, if the claim is that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we believe that, then the only way is forward. The only way is the way that he presents. Jesus said that if he were to come and raise Lazarus from the dead, which he said in verse 11 of this chapter, that God would get the glory from that. That's the bottom line for us. Continuing with what Jesus said in the direction that he has laid out before us so that God gets the glory and the world sees that Jesus is to be lifted up. Then Jesus prays a strange prayer for that moment. If I were standing in front of that tomb, I would pray that God would do something. It's not what Jesus prayed. Because the Father and, and Jesus has already talked about this. There already was a plan. He says, it says in verse 41, then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. There was no doubt in the mind of Jesus that Lazarus died. And there was Jewish superstition that a body might come back to life within three days, and so there was significance that he was in the tomb for four days. By then, the dead was dead. There was no denying it. Decay had started, odor was definitely there. And so standing in front of this impossible situation, Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come out. In the prayer, he starts off, Father, I thank you that you heard me. When we pray, we have to believe and understand that when we talk to God, the Father hears us. We don't have to wonder. Now, it also says in John that it says, if you pray, Jesus said, if you pray in my name, implying that we pray in the way that Jesus would have prayed, which eliminates the prayer for the parking space. But when we pray according to what God is doing, he accomplishes that. The prayer demonstrated, demonstrated the truth that Jesus had said in 519, I don't do anything by myself, but I do what the Father's will is. When we pray, it's not just the Spirit in us, it's also 
What is God doing? And we pray into that, which means sometimes we don't know what to pray. Later in epistles, it says that at those moments, the Spirit gives us the thoughts, that Spirit gives us the impetus to pray what God would have us to pray so he can accomplish what his will is. What Jesus was hoping to accomplish is that some of the hearers would believe that he had been sent by God himself because there was still doubt. Some of the people saw and believed. Some of the people saw the same thing and went to tattletale to the Pharisees that Jesus was still up to the shenanigans. Signs in of themselves, and we've talked about this before, do not ever convince or persuade. They're not meant to. They're only meant to point to something. The miracles that Jesus did, the things he did in our lives, are not necessarily to be celebrated They're to point us in worship and celebration of Jesus himself. The glory goes to God. And that's what was happening here. So the chief priest, Caiaphas, and he had been chief priest for about 18 years during that season, but he was definitely in position that uh, year. He's the head over the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and their collective body is not called Congress, it's called the Sanhedrin. And you can imagine the buzz that came up when these people come in and start telling, now he's raised somebody from the dead. What are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? If he continues this stuff, Rome is going to squash us. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our position. We may lose the nation. And Caiaphas has enough, and being the leader that he is, steps up and says, you don't know what you're doing. Can't you see this man must die? So from that day on, he became on the number one wanted list of the Sanhedrin to kill. And something else happened, though, at that moment. There was a prophecy given because Caiaphas was right. Jesus had to die, but not for the reasons that Caiaphas thought. Just a side note, it's interesting when you go to the mall, if you're driving down, if you go anywhere right now, even the airport, they've got people singing and playing carols. What are all the traditional carols about? We sang two of them this morning. We're gonna sing another one. They're about Jesus coming. They're about the birth of Jesus. Some of them include the whole gospel and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Many people out there singing them have no idea that they're they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They just think it's a traditional song. They might even be doing it for entertainment value. God has put into our culture a reminder every Christmas of who he is that the world grabs in all the stars, all the entertainers, grab a hold of these songs, and they sing them, proclaiming Jesus. So God uses Caiaphas' words, but in a different way. Caiaphas is speaking of revenge in a way that 
um, there's an exchange. Jesus must die so the nation lives. And for the nation to live, Jesus must die. But he's only talking about Israel, but he's really talking about Israel in the context of his power. Because if Rome comes down on them, they're nobody. They lose it. So we're scared. John, though, writes in a very different way. And he understood that Jesus would die. With that, he agreed with Caiaphas. But not for the reason that Caiaphas thought. Although, what Caiaphas thought was also true. For Jesus to die wouldn't save the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was going to be wiped out when the Romans came in in AD 60 and flattened the temple and all the Jews were scattered. But there was something else that had to happen. For Jesus to die, if you go back to Ezekiel, I believe it's 37, there's a passage of the shepherd gathering his sheep to give us a framework. And then later in that passage that God would gather his people and bring them into a nation, which happened in 1948. The nation of Israel was, was birthed. But from that, a lot of Christians, including us likely, because we know what the true church is and, and that the redeemed in Christ, those who believe in Christ, are part of the church, that we will be gathered from every tribe, every nation, into the one church when Christ comes back. So there's all kinds of meanings going on here. And John wrote that the, the death was going to be followed by a resurrection. Well, where have we just seen that? We go back just a few verses and Jesus is standing in front of a death that didn't end in death, it ended in a resurrection. It ended in an empty tomb, forecasting what was gonna happen to him. So there was no fear in Christ's heart because he knew the rest of the story. Even though what was presented in human eye was thereafter Jesus, and because it wasn't his time, he did skedaddle. He went about 12 miles south to kind of stay there until the Passover time so he could come back to Jerusalem and, and do what was needed to be done. But Jesus had to die, and he knew that because he knew he was going to raise from the dead. And it wouldn't do if the disciples killed him. That would just give Caiaphas all the reason more to say they're all crazy. It couldn't be an accident. He couldn't just uh, slip off the boat in Galilee when they were out fishing because it needed to make public and, and national news. It needed to be in Jerusalem. It needed to be seen. It needed to be political. It needed to be religious. It needed to be a point in history that we could point to a historical event that was validated not just in the Bible, but throughout literature. One of the most documented things that we have in history, the death and resurrection of Christ. Caiaphas, an interesting character because he knew scripture, he knew the law, there was probably a portion of him that actually loved 
the church that he led, even though it was a far cry from the church that God had ordained. But he's trying to protect the church. He's trying to protect the nation. But the information he had was the wrong information. But he was acting on the information he had. The problem was, it was man's information. It was limited. It wasn't the whole story. It wasn't what God was doing. It was simply what was rational to mankind. This man needed to die because Rome would crush. They didn't want that. His job was to protect the church. Let me ask a question. How does trying to protect the church, which Caiaphas was trying to do, get in the way of the mission of God for the local church? How does it get in our way when we try to protect God's church that we're all a part of? How does that get in the way of the mission of God? I know I always get ribbed when I say anything about Billy Graham, so get your pen out because I'm going to say something. When we lived in Asheville, the first week that I was that we were there, I got to know the ground crew and the maintenance crew, and they, they brought me into the security office, and they wanted to show me a tape because to them it was maddening. And the tape that they rolled on the security cameras was of Friday night at midnight, and every Friday night at midnight, a witch's coven showed up and defecated and urinated on the gates of the training center at Billy Graham. And they were just kind of angry but they weren't just angry at the event, they were angry at the people. And it, it, it was kind of sad, it was kind of humorous, and being the ordinary person that I am, I said, um, so what do you guys do about it? Well, we clean it up. I said, no, what do you do about it in your hearts? What do you mean? I said, do you ever pray for them? He got this quiet. I said, what if while you were cleaning up, you prayed for every person that in your mind violated the entry into this sacred ground? Huh. Why would we do that? Well, mostly because God loves those people. They're not your enemy. They're an enemy of God. Well, it didn't go over real well, so I left. A few weeks later, one of them said, you know, I, I've been praying on Saturday morning when I, when I clean up the mess. I said, good. He came back to me a few months later, and he said, you know what? Um, they've started missing some Friday nights. I said, really? Are you still praying? He says, more than ever. A couple months later, he came to me and said, you know, they haven't been around this month. I said, why? Because we've been praying? I said, yeah. Because God is mightier. What the world presented doesn't hold up to what God's doing. 
I don't know what happened to the individuals in that coven, but something pricked their hearts to cause them to stop. Here's the problem. When we start to avoid where sin is, and those guys hated that, we begin to avoid the sinner, then trusting that the Holy Spirit will give us the discernment of where to go and then to be able to go in his protection and guidance. We also had some friends who lived there that wouldn't go downtown Asheville. And Asheville is a beautiful city. But it also has an evil core downtown. And they wouldn't go down, they just would go downtown Asheville because it was evil. I was talking to him one day and I said, why, why won't you go down there? He says, well, you know all that goes down there. There's witches' covens and there's seances and all kinds of things. And I said, yeah, there are. I said, what do they need? They need to go away. I said, no, they need Jesus. That always stops the conversation because it's not what the flesh wants. And we have to move through what the flesh wants into what God wants. What's his agenda in this thing? Because if the church pulls away from the center, we don't do our mission. Because God has a mission and that mission has a church, us. And the mission of God is to bring himself through his son by the presence of the Holy Spirit to the world that doesn't know him. And when we avoid the sinner, we are negating our position in the mission of God, even though it's true. We don't want to do the things that they're doing. They're opposed to God. And if we just hang around them, we might be influenced. We might start to doubt. but we have to push through. Why? Because we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has power over everything in nature, life, and death. And he will succeed in his mission. He will use us. Now, he will succeed in his mission whether we choose to go along with it or not. But I want to go along with it. I want you to go along with it. Because that's where we find the satisfaction of serving Jesus. That's where we find God being glorified. And to be in an event that God is glorified lifts us up. It increases our faith. There are also times when in effort to protect the church, we do things that are right but they inadvertently bypass the mission. But they're still right. An example of that was uh, the Easter before COVID. It was talking with a pastor down on the square and they had done an amazing thing. They had invited 400 people off the street and fed them on Good Friday. I thought that was really cool. I said, well, we did the same thing, but our people came from their homes. And we had 400 people in the Micah Center out here for a great meal where we celebrated Christ's coming. But I said to her, you know what? I think your guest list was the better one. 
I think Jesus would have gone to your dinner, not ours. She was like, really? I said, yeah, because you brought people in who needed to hear the gospel. They needed to hear the reason for Easter. They needed to hear that there was a person that could, could help them in their struggles and the storms of life. And she just looked at me and she said, well, we didn't talk about that. We just fed them because they were hungry. Which is also a good thing. But they missed the mission. I said, well, we had a nice dinner, but everybody in the room already knew Jesus. We missed the opportunity. Now, both were good. But when we think of our lives in following Jesus, we have to think through, is what we're doing around the mission of God? Because I am his ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I've been made new for his purpose, his glory. Is what I am doing bringing glory to God? And so sometimes in protecting the church, we end up doing things that are good, but not necessarily what God would have us do. So the point is that God uses all things. He used Caiaphas. He used Martha in questioning because Jesus got to teach. He uses us in what we do. In all of that, do we recognize that it happens because we believe? We choose to believe. I can't imagine how Martha was shook when Jesus looks at her and says, do you believe it? They were friends. He wasn't just a teacher to them. He was a friend. They joked. They laughed. Now they cried. But she was being questioned, don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I'm Lord? Don't you know that everything that happens, good or bad, is under the auspices of my Father? And that everything that happens can be used to bring glory to me and in turn glorify the Father? If you're a Christian today, what in your life is happening or does happen sometimes where you question, where you struggle? We all do. Are you willing to take that struggle plus the belief in Jesus and press through to the right thing? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord over everything, including death? Sometimes, and I've done this, I'll be very vocal about Jesus here in the pulpit or in a counseling session or with friends that are Christians. And then you get in public 
and you tone it down. I remember being in a grocery store and uh, Ron from over at, I um, can't remember the church is at, anyway, he's a big guy. And from across the way, he yells, Pastor Mike! Everybody in hy just got quiet and looked at us. <laughs> and it was awkward. Because I had just been identified as a Christian in a very public place. Oh, we met and we hugged and acted like nobody cared and we didn't. But for a moment, I kind of wanted to hide. And we get ourselves in those situations. Or maybe we're walking down the mall and somebody's singing Silent Night and we look at them and we know good and well. They're not there to honor Jesus. But the words are real. The words are true. Do we praise God or do we scowl at the person? Do we keep to ourselves when we see an injustice? Or do we step up in the power of the Holy Spirit and come alongside? If somebody were to come in that smelled didn't drive a Lexus, sat down next to you, what would you do? When our oldest got back from India after serving a YWAM DTS in Cape Town and then her practicum in Mumbai, we were attending Wooddale in uh, Eden Prairie Minneapolis area at the time. And if you've been to Wooddale, it's a beautiful church, absolutely gorgeous. You walk in and there's this relief, a brick wall probably about 120 feet long, and it's, it's uh, all done, you know, the picture of the harvest and set into the brick, and it's just gorgeous. So Jay gets back and she says, I can't go to Wooddale anymore. It's too haughty. I said, is it? She goes, yeah, have you ever looked at the parking lot? It's like a luxury car lot. I said, where are you going to church? She goes, I'm going to a goth church downtown. I said, is the Bible being preached? She goes, you better. You better believe it every Sunday. Friday night, we feed 200 kids. I said, good. Where do the people of Wooddale live? She says, Eden Prairie, Nadina. If you're familiar with that area, it's the high end of Minneapolis. And I said, uh, so the cars in the parking lot at the church are probably the cars from their driveway. Well, yeah. They probably live in pretty nice houses, and they probably have a pretty high standard of living, and this fits where they live and work and not worship. Yeah, what's the point? I said, so do you take an offering from the goth kids? She said, no, they don't have money. So who pays for the dinner on Friday night? I don't know. What do you think a dinner costs for 200 people? Well, probably at least five bucks a person does the math and gives me a number. I said, do you know who pays for that? At that moment, she knew she was trapped. 
No. I said, the church that you refuse to go to is funding the church that you do go to because they could never reach a goth, but they can pay for the people that do. I said, what you see in the flesh may not be what God is doing. All right, but I'm still not going there. I said, hey, I don't care as long as you're going. Go where you want to. But when we believe, it opens up our eyes to amazing things that God is doing. Conversations that we can have. Prayers that we can give. Just insight into relationships. The lack of fear when we drive places. Maybe places that rightfully are scary. But we don't need to fear because God is with us. There's something unique about being his son or daughter. There's something that's peaceful. Don't get trapped by what you see and hear in the world. It does not change who Jesus is. Conversely, when Scripture or Jesus through the Spirit says something that makes you go, hmm, dig in. There's probably depth and meaning there that you need to hold on to, even though it may not make a lot of rational sense at the moment. It will play out. If you're not a Christian today, if you're not somebody who has followed or decided to follow Jesus, I just want to ask you a simple question. What are the small t truths of the world that you're believing that are stopping you from listening to the big T truth of God's word? Maybe you just hear Caiaphas say, kill Jesus. And you're like, yeah, get rid of those Christians. But the problem with it is the death was followed by a resurrection. And that has to have more power than a death. Because see, we're all gonna die. We've been to funerals. We know it happens. It's happening right now. But I've never been to a resurrection. I know about one, well, two, Lazarus. That's a pretty big deal because Jesus is indeed Lord. He is worth following. So I want you to be honest with yourself so that when you see truth, you can acknowledge it. It's okay to question. Thomas, ahead in John 20, one of the disciples after the resurrection, I don't know if I can handle this, Jesus. So Jesus walks through a wall and says, what do you need, Thomas? That had to be a moment. He says, uh, can I see the scars? Now here's the resurrected Jesus standing in front of him. If I were Jesus, I'd have gone, <laughs> no more Thomas. But that's not what Jesus did. He lifts up his robe, and he shows where he was pierced. 
Look at my feet. Look at my hands. It's you, isn't it, Lord? Yeah, it is. Wounded for your sins, but not holding them against you, because I love you. And that's what Jesus is saying to you today, if you don't know him. In fact, he's saying it to all of us. I love you. I died for you. But better than that, I rose for you. Back to what Jesus said, I think, in verse 3 or 4, John 11. This sickness will not end in death. We're all going to die. But if you're a follower of Christ, it's not going to end in death. It's going to end in an empty tomb, a resurrection. Let's pray. Father, forgive my unbelief. Forgive our unbelief. We not only have scripture, but we have our lives where we have seen you over and over demonstrate your lordship. We look outside and we see the demonstration of your power, Father, over nature to change the seasons, to control everything so that we can do simple things like breathe. The sun comes up in a regular schedule goes down so we can sleep. You're amazing. And yet in that, we struggle because we're human. We think out of our experiences. We understand out of our experiences and our limited knowledge. But you are so far beyond that, and you use everything that happens. It's even penned in your scripture that you take everything that was intended for evil and have the capacity to turn it for good so that Jesus is lifted up and the Father is glorified. Father, we are your church, but let us be the church that Jesus birthed. Don't let us be religious. Don't let us have the need to protect it. Help us to be lights, and for lights to be of any good, they must shine in darkness. So when we hear a proclamation, let us ask, what are you doing? Give us understanding so that we can enjoy and lift up the name of Jesus as it plays out. And Father, for those of us that do not know you, who are here today, help us to ask the right question. And if the question is answered, give us the courage to believe so that we can know the joy too. In Jesus' name, amen.